Freakish History takes a deep dive into stranger-than-fiction historical events and plops the listener down in the middle of the bizarre and compelling action. In Season 1, we head to Cleveland, Ohio for the Tencent Beer Night Riot of 1974. Welcome to Heading for Home, a 10 cent beer night odyssey. I'm Eric Olson. Every year, the media celebrate the anniversary of the 10 cent beer night riot of 1974 at Cleveland Stadium. Fans, awash in cheap beer, streaked, chanted obscenities, pelted the players with everything from hot dogs to explosives, then charged the field and brawled viciously with the visiting Texas Rangers and their own home team Indians. This is that story. Before we launch into the Heading for Home docudrama in two weeks, let's dig into the events of that fateful game at Cleveland Stadium on June 4th, 1974. This week, we speak with attendees Buck McWilliams, Terry Yurkic, and Jim Clark. Besides being my good friend and baseball teammate at Chagrin Falls High School, Buck McWilliams attended the 10 cent beer night game. He has had a distinguished career as morning show host at top radio stations in Toledo, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Manchester, Columbus, West Palm Beach, and Miami, Fort Lauderdale. He is currently senior account manager at Odyssey Radio Stations in Cleveland. Welcome, Buck. Oh, I'm um, breathless just listening to this intro, but uh, but thank you. Yeah. Um, and we did, yeah, we went to that game that night. In fact, as, as we're um, sitting here looking at a beautiful cloudless day, uh, it reminds me of the day that the game took place. Um, it was uh, just an absolutely beautiful day. And one of the reasons why we went was because we knew it was going to be a beautiful night, too. But I, I got to tell you, even before you, you ask me about, you know, setting the stage for that, that day and that night, um, we were a painting crew, all right, me and a couple of, um, of our classmates also, uh, we painted. And during the day, to keep us company, we had the radio blasting. And in part, egged on to go to that game last night by all the chatter that uh, the announcers were giving during the day, uh, talking up the game. And uh, sure, the fact that it was 10 cent beer night that was an inducement, too. Um, but we were really more interested. To, you know, the, if you recall, the Indians had a pretty good team that year. They had a lot of um, they had some good pitching. They were competitive. Granted, it was June. That would fizzle out by the end of August. But it was fun to watch them. And, um, and it was easy to watch them because that year, I think also the second, uh, second year in a row, that they had priced bleacher seats at 50 cents. Well, you know, you're talking pocket change. Um, it was early in the week, and uh, we had, you know, spare change that would buy us not only admission to the game, but a bunch of beers, too, because it was dime beer night. Um, not the first time that, time that they had done that, not the first time that we had taken advantage of dime beer night. Um, so here it was, you know, all day long under the hot sun, it was a beautiful early June day. Um, we're all trying to figure out what are we going to do tonight, and 
you know, they're talking about Billy Martin's Texas Rangers coming into town, dime beer night. Why would you not want to go to the stadium? And they had only sold like, uh, they were only expecting a crowd of 10,000, but uh, apparently there was 15,000 more people like us who went to the game and it swelled to about 25,000 people went to that game that night. So where did you guys sit? Well, we started out in the bleachers, of course. Um, and the bleachers were full uh, that day of uh, 50 cent patrons. And the nice thing was that, you know, out there, they also had, uh, you know, uh, refreshment stands. So we didn't have to go anywhere. We just went down underneath to the bleachers. But what happened um, as we started watching uh, as the game was progressing around about the third or fourth inning, um, it became apparent that you could sneak in and get better seats. Um, they had this flimsy, you know, board that you might see otherwise um, posted over broken windows in a building. They had this thing there. It was very easy to um, sneak through. And we saw a lot of people doing it. Now, we didn't do it for a while because we thought, you know, first of all, we, we were fine where we were. Um, but then again, if you're sitting there going, well, you know, we could sit in the bleachers or we could sit there in you know, third base and uh, get better seats, why not? So about the fifth inning or so, that's what we did too. And, you know, as we look back at the bleachers, there was fewer and fewer people. So we, uh, we, we snuck in uh, like a lot of other people did, and we took our seats around um, the third base side. Um, pretty good seats. Pretty good seats. So, you know, a lot of other people were up in the upper deck. And, of course, that's where a lot of the action was because yeah. that's where the Rangers' dugout was. And there right. was already, like, border wars going on between fans and the players, and especially Billy Martin, right? because of all of this agitation, you know, before the game, and because, of course, the the uh, five days earlier in Texas, the the brawl with... Uh, Lenny Randall. With Lenny Randall. Yeah. Precipitated by Lenny, but, but finished off by the fans, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that was another thing, too. I mean, first of all, we were... We were big baseball fans. So we were very aware of Billy Martin and his antics and how he would, uh, you know, how he would uh, ramp up with the crowd, how he would agitate his own players. And we thought, well, you know, here we are rubbing our hands together going, oh, this is going to be great. You know, it's like a scene out of Animal House. Oh, boy, is this great. <laughs> so, so we were all primed and ready to go. And, uh, you know, a lot of the fans were too. But, yeah, to your point, um, a lot of it did happen on the third base side. So we found ourselves um, in a really good position to watch what was playing out. Did you notice uh, some, of, some of the other people we've spoken to, including the world-famous Terry Yurkic, mm. uh, that he had really noticed, and what a lot of observers did, there were lots of firecrackers, fireworks yes, going yeah, off, explosions yeah. throughout the game. Yeah, there were, and um, I, 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 don't, uh, I don't know what the impetus of that was. I mean, it was about a month, almost a month before 4th of July, so people were getting their uh, fireworks. But, you know, um, you might remember this, too. Um, at the end of the school year, in Chagrin, where we went to high school, there was a lot of those same fireworks being blown off. <laughs> I don't know how we got them or what Saved the from the year before. Well, yeah. yeah, probably, but you know, uh, you'd be sitting in class and all of a sudden you'd hear a big M80 or a cherry bomb go off and ah, <laughs> that's hysterical. And you know, um, I may have uh, lit some of those off myself. Oh, no, 
Yeah, yeah. So well, statute of limitations is up. Yeah, well, thank goodness too, because uh, yeah, we were miscreants to the nth degree. But yeah, for some reason, uh, you know, cherry bombs and then maybe eighties proliferated the scene, and that carried over, I guess, to uh, the ball games. But yeah, you're right. I remember a lot of fireworks were going off. Did you see, uh, like, when we talked to Terry? He, he said he. Sure, there was a lot going on. There was a lot of, you know, antics. And, of course, there were streakers and flashers yeah. and lots of people running across the field and whatnot. But overall, he felt that the tone in the stands was was pretty cheerful and positive until the very end. Well, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Um, a lot of bored people were uh, were drunk and had nothing else to do because the Rangers were beating up on the Indians. Now, as the game went on, the Indians were clawing back, and that's what really irritated me. And I remember saying as we were leaving, they just tied it up. We were getting ready for a, a huge celebration because they had some momentum going. So, yeah, we were down 5 nothing, I believe, and we ended up, you know, clawing our way back. So it became, a, again, a competitive ball game, and... and you we know, had a runner on third when yes, the game was called. Yes, yes, and so and I remember Lowenstein what hit hit in um, the tying run, sack fly. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, and then here we are getting ready to win the game, and everybody's going to go crazy and go home with a win, and uh, yeah, that was kind of spoiled, and we were di very disappointed about that. You know, watching what was playing out in front of us was one thing, but there's a major league baseball game going on, and we got really good seats, and guess what? We're going to beat Billy Martin and stuff it back in his face any minute now. And had the Indians won that game, they would have been 500. Right. They were one game under going into that game. Yep. And instead of the win and being 500, you know, they came out of it two games down yeah. because of the forfeit. So what are your memories of the actual, the ninth inning? Besides, well, so you got on the field, there's plenty of action going on. The Indians are tying it up. And, and so um, we happen to be sitting behind uh, four well-dressed Japanese businessmen. And they were in front of us. I don't know if it was right in front of us or a, a couple of rows in front of us. And, you know, so we're, we're you know, laughing because like, oh boy, these guys are still in their suits and all that. And, uh, and they probably haven't seen one of these things, you know, back in Japan where baseball is really big. And so we're taking it all in. Can't believe what we're seeing. Never seen anything like this before. And then I happen to look down on the field. This is well into the, you know, to the riot. The game has been called. And I see at second base those same four businessmen in their suits, and they're all crowded around second base, and one of them is bent over, and they're trying to remove the base from the field. And the other three are egging them on, and they're like, you know, it's like, a, you know, a, a, an Indian war hoop dance, you know? Um, and I just couldn't believe what I was seeing, and I'm like, look, guys, you know, the people that we were with, look at this, look what's going on at second base. Well, in America, right. do you like Americans? Exactly, exactly. Couldn't so, get away with that in Japan. That was, yeah, that was, <laughs> normally couldn't get away with that anywhere. Yeah, that, that's pretty aberrant behavior anywhere, I guess. So that's my big takeaway. That that uh, memory has been etched in my mind forever. And then we just kind of said, we better get out of here because it's getting kind of dangerous. And so we did. And, you know, as we're walking back to the car, a lot of other people, you know, were engaging in them talking about, wow, what did you see? And, you know, I remember one guy saying, you know, Burroughs wasn't down. He was, he, he fell down kicking that other guy, you know, who was Terry.
I remember Terry Boy. He was uh, the instigator. We didn't know him, but we saw him. Right. Yeah. Oh, well, his story is so is so funny because uh, he is otherwise a very accomplished person. He was the man of the year on Richmond Heights in 2000. And the year before this happened, the game in 1973, he was the 185-pound state wrestling champion. Oh, no wonder they were afraid <laughs> of him. How about it's that? just hilarious. For, for Maple Heights? From Richmond Heights. Richmond Heights, okay. So do you remember anything about the aftermath of the game? Um, I just remember um, we went home and I went to my house and my dad, who was usually asleep because it was like 11 o'clock at night, 11.30, he was up. <laughs> he goes, you guys went to the game, didn't you? And I was like, I couldn't wait to tell him all about it. So I did, you know, but he was like, I'm listening to Herb Score and Joe Tate. And they're just, uh, I, I couldn't believe what we're, what I was hearing. And they couldn't believe what they were seeing. And uh, I couldn't wait for you to get home. <laughs> I said, well, it's surprising to see you up because usually you're, you're, you know, asleep by now. So, I mean, that, that's what I remember. It was a work night. Yeah, it was. Well, and not only that, but uh, he was, uh, he went to work at um, what was then Irreview Plaza, which is now the Galleria. But I took his, um, I always had his uh, card to get in. So we parked for that. free, yeah. right? And uh, he wanted to make sure that I had brought the card back so he could get back into work tomorrow. So, but that's what, that's, that's what I remember, um, you know, after we got to the car, we, we really wanted to kind of get out of there before, um, the writing was the, on the wall. Before the police started showing up and arresting people. Yeah, which was, was shortly thereafter. Yeah, there were some arrests that night. Oh, yeah, there yeah. were 11 arrests, which even that seems really small. Well, uh, remember, there's uh, how many more can three cops arrest? <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, that's all they had. And by the time the riot squad showed up, the the writing was on the wall and people were clearing out. Even even the rioters yeah. uh, were we're clearing out yeah. so yeah it's it's one of those magical bizarre and strange nights and you were there yeah i was i was and uh it's one of those uh nights that i'll never forget i mean you know we're both big baseball fans oh yes. we both played i didn't throw the no hitter you did but you know um so you know um but in in all my time uh, i've seen a lot of things that i say when i saw it I never seen that before, but I've never seen that before or since. Or since. Or since, yeah. So, you know, there's that. Terry Yurkic was Ohio State wrestling champ his senior year at Richmond Heights High School in 1973, where he also played football. And he earned a full-ride scholarship to Cleveland State University. A versatile athlete, he played 16-inch softball for 14 years and went to the national championship four times. As a citizen of Richmond Heights, Terry served on the Recreation Board, Master Plan Committee, served 20-plus years as Santa Claus for Breakfast with Santa, coached football at Richmond Heights High School and Middle School, and was Girls Softball Commissioner. He was inducted into the Richmond Heights Sports Hall of Fame in 1988 and was Richmond Heights Citizen of the Year in 2000. Yet despite all these impressive and virtuous deeds, Terry will go down in history for something else. Welcome, Terry. It's so nice to have you and to be able to speak to you. What is that exactly do you think that you will be best known for, perhaps in posterity? Uh, it would be Tencent Beer Night Riot at Cleveland Stadium. With the Indians. So how did all of that come about? Give us a little background. 
Well, we always used to go to the baseball games. We had a friend that their his uncles were the groundskeepers, the bossards for the stadium. So we were always down at the stadium watching games or watching practices. And as it was on June 4th, it was 10 cent beer night at the stadium. And myself and four other friends went down to the stadium, just have an enjoyable evening. And it all turned crazy. And you were 19 then, right? Correct. And uh, you mentioned that you, at that time, you could walk right into the stadium with your own cup, with your own all kinds of stuff. So what did you guys do? We we brought our own containers. I had a an A&W root beer plastic keg, about a quart, and we were allowed to fill up our containers with beer. So how did that work? You were out in the bleachers? We were in the ble- left field ble- or left field bleachers, and the beer truck was set up right in front of the bleachers, right behind the left field home run fence, and that's where we were starting to get our beer from. So, is that early in the game that you were able to do that? Yes, we were there. We were there about forty-five minutes early, and so we got our some beers early, but then it really started. There was a flash-up crowd of 21,000 people. Normally we'd have three, 4,000 people at the Indians and that's kind of what they were expecting. And there was such a flash up crowd. Then it just got, the lines just got so long at the beer truck. So they were, sir, they were selling beer out of the truck as well as at the concession stands. Yes. Cause in the bleachers, there were no concession stands there. It was, that's why they had the truck in front of the bleachers. So, uh, you said it became kind of a serve-yourself type situation as the game was progressing? That's true. We, nearing about the fourth inning, it was getting so long to get a beer. The the fans, including myself and our friends, we just took the tables away. And the two girls that were manning the truck, they just walked off. And so we had the beer trucks to ourselves. So we were filling our own containers, even to the point where we would flip the tap and tilt our head back and just pour the beer into our mouths. And when the keg got empty, somebody would jump up in the trunk truck and connect a new uh, a new uh, keg of beer. Truly serve yourself. Yes. Were you leaving a dime for each cup? Were you estimating, here's another dime, here's a dime? No, we weren't thinking about that. <laughs> we were just happy to get our beer. What did you notice happening throughout the game besides what you guys were doing? Every inning it started to get a just a little more wild, just a little more crazy. Streakers on the field. A lady went up to the umpire and flashed him. People between innings were jumping on the field, running the bases. It's just everybody was having a really, really good time. What was the mood? It was happy. It was good. We were all having a lot of fun. And the Rangers, they were being harassed. And even as it was in Texas the week before, fans were throwing hot dogs at them. They were throwing anything they could find. Did you witness any of this action where people were like literally ripping seats 
out of the concrete of the stadium and breaking them up? No, we didn't. We didn't see that. We, uh, as I said, we were in the bleachers, so you know we were sitting on hard benches. So as the game progressed, um, it sounds like you kind of. Uh, rotated over to the to the actual fence itself. Is that where you were ending up later in the game? Right. We were middle of the game. We started just standing on the home run fence on the middle bar. And once every long while, a policeman would walk by, tap us on the back of the legs with his stick. We'd hop down. He'd walk off. We would just hop back up. They really didn't care. And were you interacting with uh, any of the players at that point? No, at that point we were just we were just watching the game, standing on the home run fence that close to the action was better than being in a in a in a loge. It certainly was. So as we got into the ninth inning, when things were certainly starting to get uh, delicate, as it were, what was your situation, and what happened from there? Well, we had moved over to the right field fence. And standing on that, and Jeff Burroughs was was in right field, and it just he was there, and I I saw his hat, and I just want I just decided I wanted to get his hat, so I I jumped the fence and ran up behind him and grabbed his hat, and I had it in my hand, and I dropped it, so I went I went down to pick it up. I looked up, and he looked at me. I said, "Oh hell." And he kicked me right in the thigh, he left perfect spike marks in my thigh, and he fell down. And unbeknownst to me, Billy Martin with the Rangers thought he had been hurt. So he told the Rangers to grab bats, and so they were running out to the outfield chasing me. And so I I took off and ran across the outfield to the left field. And the fans there, back then, the home run, the warning track was gravel. So they opened up the fence where the grounds crew would come through so I could run out, and then they were grabbing gravel and throwing it at the Rangers, and they repeat, they they repelled them from me. So I got back up into the bleachers, and then all hell broke loose. All the fans, Did you have the hat? No, I never got the hat. After Once he kicked me, I, I thought better part of discretion was get out of here. You kind of like snapped back into reality it sounded like you made the right move i would say right it it really dawned on me this is really a bad decision so what did you see were you able to see back then over the fence once you were once you were out of harm's way were you able to see what was going on on the field yes i walked back up into the bleachers because i still had four other fans there my brother included and two of them my brother and a friend of mine that was in Richmond Heights High School were trying to get into the Rangers dugout to get souvenirs while they're chasing me. And the other two that we went with, they were younger. They uh, they couldn't get over the fence, so they stayed there. So they were heading to the dugout. I was running for my life from the Rangers and got up into the bleachers. I was just waiting for them to so we could meet back up and get out of there because... It was. It had really gotten out of control. What did it look like on the field? Oh, it was just a mass of humanity. There was just fans everywhere. The players were still on the field. Fights were starting to break out because they were. You know, the ball players were protecting themselves. 
And so it, it was, it just became total chaos. So did, did your brother make it into their dugout? No. The trainers or people that were left in the dugout started swinging bats to keep people out of the dugout. That's when people were grabbing bases and stealing the bases. And it just, yeah, they never got in. So I imagine it felt quite different from the, the earlier mood. Oh, yes. It, it became, it became really, really dangerous and and it was it was becoming just untenable wait any thoughts on why the mood changed so dramatically just in retrospect well i think just as it was getting crazier and crazier during the game you know most of the fans knew better to stay put but then once in the ninth inning once a big amount of fans started running on the field they just thought it was a blank check to to do whatever they wanted to do. So everybody was just kind of following the direction of the early uh, crazies. (laughs) So what happened in the aftermath of the game? Well, we, we, we got it met up with my friends, my brother, and we got out of the stadium, you know, no harm. And just, just wanted to get back home. Did anything happen? Were there any consequences of the, uh, of your activities? Well, not for me. We kept, you know, it was kept pretty quiet because it was, it was not a good thing. As it ended up, it was it was a bad decision. But we uh, we didn't. There was no uh, consequences for us. Now, I had a friend who was just becoming a. He was just ending his junior year at school, and he went in the next morning, and all of a sudden he heard over the PA system the principal wanted to see him and so he went up to the principal's office and and our principal was a, a great guy just a wonderful guy and he asked my friend he says Jim what'd you do last night and he said well nothing Mr. Julik I no I didn't do anything he goes did you go to the game no no Mr. Julik I didn't go to the game he goes you sure you didn't go to the game he goes no he goes I, he says I'll I'll give you one last chance did you go to the game so he knew he was caught. He's, you know, he confessed and says, "Yeah, I was there." And our principal read him the riot act and about representing the school, the community, himself. And as my friend was walking out, he turned around to the principal and asked him, "Mr. Truly goes, how did you know?" He goes, "Next time, don't wear your letter jacket on the field, you idiot." As we found out, our principal was a statistician for the Indians. So he was wearing his letter jacket with a big Richmond Heights and his name across the back, and he was he was caught. <laughs> Red lettered, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you kind of go public? When did when did it become known that 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 was you? That you were the guy who grabbed the hat? Probably the the, the most most major time was Cleveland Magazine had found out that you know what I that I was part of that, so they had called to do an interview with me in a photo shoot. And so I went down and we did it. And it was, you know, it was a real nice, real nice article. And after that, it just, it just started gaining speed because it was, it was out there. Right. Well, cause you really were kind of the catalyst. Uh, all this was building, of course, uh, throughout the game, but the, the actual catalyst for that final onslaught was, was your approach. Yeah, that was it. Was the uh, the spark that that lit the powder keg? Because it was the ninth inning. It was 
you know, it was bottom of the ninth and everybody was just ready. It was, and once, once I went on the field and once they opened the gate so I could get out and all the fans started rushing in through the gate, then people were jumping over the, you know, the lower deck walls and just one led to another led to hundreds and hundreds. What's your guess on the total? There's never really been an accurate, you know, oh, we can go by our pictures and the little tiny bit of video there is. What's your guess on how many fans went to onto the field? There, there was a lot. It was just the whole field, even the outfield, was filled with fans. There, like I said, there had to have been hundreds, maybe even thousands on that field. So did you, when you're watching this after you were safely back in the stands, I mean, did you see actual mayhem? Did you see anything that truly frightened you? Just from a distance, you could see the action going on, not specifically which player was there, which one was, was defending himself, and they were punching fans, and the Indians were helping them. And it, it could have been a real disaster if the Indians hadn't stayed on to to protect the Rangers. So you think the fans would have really gone after him at that point? It it had gotten that far out of control. So what were the forces that aligned? Obviously, a ocean of beer was certainly a important factor. Anything else that comes to mind of, of why that happened that time versus any other time? Because there's... There was another 10 cent beer night six weeks later and there were no problems, no issues. Well, the thing is after what happened with the first one, it certainly, you know, the, the warning was out there, but for the second one, I believe you were only allowed six beers. And there was a lot more security. Oh, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, it only makes sense that, that it was just on everyone's mind by then anyway, but, but for 10 cent beer night for the, for, for the riot, any thoughts on what specifically led? Why, why the perfect storm that night? Well, I think there was a lot of different reasons. It was a beautiful night and a 10 cent beer night, but back then you could drink at 18. So this brought a, a, a different crowd to the for that game for the ballpark for ten cent beer, and being young and stupid and drinking, it uh, I think a lot of young the younger fans took advantage of it. Right, right, yeah. The all the reports say that the of of that twenty one thousand plus that it was very notable that it was a lot of high school and college age people more than usual absolutely it was it was filled with young people it wasn't there wasn't not that i saw a lot of families in the park or or elderly not for 10 cent beer night you know watching it you know from the bleachers after the ninth inning after they canceled the game or even a little before they canceled the game people were throwing cherry bombs into the rangers dugout this is how dangerous it got it just fireworks explosives were being were being tossed i mean it just seemed like a lot of people had fireworks that night of course as we were younger back then all of us played with fireworks i imagine that was a factor but yeah if you have explosives going on throughout the game it just explosive people just running wild you know nudity with people flashing and streaking it just it just had everything. And it just kept escalating. 
It absolutely did. And until until the police finally came to the stadium and they started using um, gas. Right. Well, it was the riot yeah. squad that arrived finally, uh, as I understand it, after after a policeman in his car and his cruiser heard uh, Herb and Joe over the radio say, I think we got a riot here. And he called it in. A cop called it in. They were, yeah, they were completely understaffed with people to serve beers, police, security, ushers. It just, they were overwhelmed. It was just, they never, they never imagined what was about to happen. They sure didn't. Well, Terry Yurkic, what a pleasure to speak with you. And uh, I, I must say, you have accomplished many wonderful things in your life. And uh, you know, imagine what it would be like to be only known as the instigator of the Ten Cent Beer Night Riot. But in your case, that is not the case. No, it just—it was just part of a story of knucklehead nineteen-year-old growing up, family and community, and you know, most kids go through something like that. Do in their something life. dumb. That's yeah, for sure. It's, it's inevitable. All right. Well, thank you so much. Great talking to you. Appreciate your input. And you will always be remembered as the hat thief at Ten Cent Beer Night. (laughs) Yes, I wish I would have came home with it. Jim Clark is the author of Rally Round Cleveland, the story of the 1974 franchise-saving Cleveland Indians, and has been the radio voice of the Akron Rubber Ducks, formerly called the Canton Akron Indians and Akron Arrows, for 30 years. He recently called his 35th 100 game for the team. Jim was inducted into the Greater Akron Baseball Hall of Fame in 2019. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for having me. I am fascinated by your effort on Rally Round Cleveland, which is literally a game-by-game description of the season of the 74 Indians. What brought that on, that monumental task? What drove you to it? Well, I really thought that if not for that year, we would not be talking about the Cleveland Guardians or after that Cleveland Indians baseball. Franchise attendance was plummeting throughout the 70s. They were threatened to leave. Hank Greenberg and his father-in-law wanted to ship them out. Late 50s, 58. They bought Greenberg out. They rallied in 59, had a great year, finished in second place. Colorado hit 42 home runs, four and one again. They five games from a pennant that year. Then they traded Rocky, and that hurt attendance again. You got to the 60s where... They had really bad years. Browns outdrew them with then seven home games in probably 62, 63, 64, and 64 was really bad. There was talk of getting them out during the 64 season. They were meeting in Seattle, Minneapolis. They thought they were in Seattle. Hal Levowitz of the PD got wind of it, and they started the campaign in town, keep the Indians, keep the Indians, and they voted in October when the season ended to give the franchise one more shot. They signed a 10-year contract, so they were there. Then they got Calavito back in a trade. Attendance rose. They had a good year. Played pretty good ball in 68. They had a good year, almost a million again. But then it really got bad. In 
what, in 71, they, or 72, they drew under 800,000. Now, in 73, they drew a little over 600,000. Back to 71, under 600,000 again. And Nick Maletti bought the team in 72. And he was a Cleveland guy. Cavaliers, Barons, the Crusaders. He owned the arena. He was a BG guy. And he, and, and he was going to give it a shot. But the way I'm thinking, one more of these years of 600,000 fans, expansions looming. Seattle wanted baseball. Toronto wanted baseball. The nation's capital wanted baseball back. I'm thinking, you know, one more of these years of 600,000 fans or 500,000 fans, and they could very well be on their way out. And that's what prompted me to write the book. Now, were you going to every home game in previous seasons, or or you just determined that you wanted to do it that season? Never every home game, and not every home game that year. I lived in I, I lived in Akron. I was a college student, so I wasn't going to. But the thing is, back then, you could park for 50 cents. The Muni lot now was the 50-cent lot. Cross under 9th Street, go to um, train tracks, go to the Muni lot, 50 cents. You could park for 50 cents. You could sit in the bleachers for 50 cents. You could spend a weekend up there. You could bring your own food, bring your own drink. If you just wanted to go to the ball game, you could find, easily find ways to do it. The general mission tickets were two fifty. It was a great buy, so I was probably, I would bet, I went to maybe thirty thirty five games, if not more, in seventy four. So it wasn't a decision. I am going to every home no, game. Oh no, I no. How did you do the research for the games you didn't attend, and did you keep notes? Well, I, mean, I kept score of a lot of games, and that's just one of those years that. And you, and I'm sure you have this same thing happen with you. When there's games that stick in your mind, they always stick in your mind. And that season was really, as an 18, as a 19 year old, was my first pennant race. They had never been in a pennant race that late into a season before. So you were, if you weren't there, you had your radio with you. There weren't that many games on TV then. 48, 50, maybe 55, something like that. And, and in fact, they were on Channel 8 then. And, you know, you were just, it sucked you in. If you were a fan, it brought you in, and it did with many Clevelanders that year again. All right, so, of course, we're talking about the infamous Tencent Beer Night riot of June 4th, and you were there, and you've done an exceptional job in your book, of explaining the events and chronicling them. Why don't you run us through a little bit of it? What sticks out in your mind, maybe even now, and uh, just go from there. You know, the amazing thing was they had done beer nights before that. In beer days, they had nickel beer day back in 71. Beer nights were popping up all over baseball. When you can throw out a 10-cent beer night, and you're thinking 10-cent beer night, three, two beers— and were only 10 cents, you could buy six at a time. That was kind of scary. And even, I'm not a math guy, but I know that you could make many trips back and get six at a time. But, you know, one of the amazing things about that night that maybe more than anything else was, it was a hot summer night. There was, it was a beautiful night for early June. And the week before, they were in Texas. And late in the game, 
Lenny Randall laid a bunt down to first base. And you can find this clip on YouTube of what prompted, really started the whole thing. He lays down a bunt, and he just cleans the clock of Milt Wilcox going to first base. He was the, he was the Indian pitcher, was going to cover the bunt, and then it all broke loose. The benches emptied. There was beer on the Indian dugout all night long. There was all kinds of garbage going on, and it was pretty much almost a riot in Texas. Now, the Ranger manager was Billy Martin, which is the perfect Hollywood part to the story, as Badland Billy was perfect for Texas. Cowboy hat, the cowboy boots, and he was her manager. And after the ball game, they go, well, Billy, you go to Cleveland next week. What do you think? He goes, ah, they'll be mad. But on the other hand, no one goes anyway. That did not go well. If you were in Cleveland back then as either a youngster or an adult, you knew who Pete Franklin was on 3WE, 50,000 watts. And he was sports talk with Pete Franklin nightly, 7 to 11, before the game, after the game. And Pete had no filter. And his words were, hey, you can say we, he goes, we can say we stink. We can say nobody goes, but you can't say that anywhere. The thing was, Billy Martin liked Cleveland. He played for Cleveland in 59. He, he liked the city, but that's just Billy being Billy. So this happens in the middle of the week in Texas. So Pete's got after the game on a Wednesday. He's got Thursday. He's got Friday. He's got Monday to just really rev this game up with Texas coming to town the next Tuesday. So Billy's got him. Pete's got everybody ready to go when they get to that ball game. Plus the club is starting to play better baseball. They're starting to win a little bit, and Pete calls it payback time. Well, the thing that still gets me, though, and they're very lucky that this did not happen. Now, they drew 25,000 that night, and that was a great Tuesday night crowd for early June then. Now, they started drawing much better later in the year. They had seven or eight crowds over 40,000, 35,000. If they would have had... Ten more thousand there that night. Somebody might have got killed. I mean, that field was covered with people. They were lucky that it wasn't a Friday night, that it was a Tuesday night, or it could have really been more mayhem than it was already. You could smell the marijuana early in the game. And I, I never really did up there before had that sensation. I thought, boy, this is different. Firecrackers out of the upper deck even before the game began, I thought, boy, this is going to be different tonight. I was on crutches, broke my foot three weeks earlier, and I had my crutches with me. We sat in general mission in right field, which was a great seat. You were one section over, you were in a box seat, so you were pretty much in a box seat where you were at, about five, seven rows back. And the fans, they kept filtering in. It was, you know, there was traffic on 77 coming up. I thought, well, this is a good thing. But once it got in there, it was such a circus atmosphere for an Indians game. I thought, boy, this is this this will be different tonight. And it didn't take long for it to start. Um, you know, you had plus you had a a Ranger team that was pretty good. Our team was getting better. You had Ferguson Jenkins going for them. Fritz Peterson for the Indians. And, you know, in the 
second inning Tom Grieve homers. He was an he was a Ranger outfielder, and the heavy set woman gets up, and she's on top of the Indian dugout, wanders out there, pulls her top down, tries to kiss Nestor Shylock the first base umpire, thinking, I've been to a lot of games, <laughs> even though I'm only 19, I've never ever witnessed this before. I'm thinking, Dave, this okay, maybe it'll settle down now a little bit. Well. Grieve Homer's again two innings later, gets to third base. A fan jumps out of the stands in left field. He's naked, slides into second base. And I'm thinking, this is nuts. Lee Ron Lee, who was one of our outfielders, lines one back at Ferguson Jenkins, hits him in the knee. And you, you could hear it crack. The fans are chanting, hit him again, hit him again. I'm thinking, this is like a high school football game now. I'm thinking, this is so unusual. It was still early in the game. So you having attended so many games, you, you you had a feel for the kind of the regular vibe, and you you knew right away that this was a different feeling. So was it a combination of the crowd being revved up in advance by Pete Franklin and the newspapers? Yes. Uh, as well. There were cartoons that day, I think, at both papers. Uh, so you had the alcohol... You had the uh, the the pre-violence uh, revving, and um, and you had the fact that a lot of the way a lot of people have described it is the the twenty five thousand was made up of a lot of people who didn't normally go to games and who weren't even necessarily paying that much attention to the game. They were there for the atmosphere, more like maybe people who would end up going to the concerts at the stadium. The baseball fans pretty much stayed in their seats. Everybody else, we could see them lined up behind that outfield fence. We had the table set up selling the beer. And it seemed like the steady stream was out there all night long. It seemed like that a quarter of the crowd was always behind the fence. had no idea what was going on. And I thought, I've just, I've, I just, I mean, thing was for me, I didn't drink beer then. I don't drink it now. I could have cared less. I was one of those guys who I went to the ball game for one reason. I wanted to go to the ball game. That's who I still am now. And you see the different type of fans. And you're, you're absolutely right. A majority were there because of a 10 cent beer night. Now you still had a good core of Indian fans there, but the later it got in the game, the more things kept happening. You could tell that this wasn't anything near a typical baseball crowd. It was more like a football crowd that was going bad, and you could see it coming. So if you were in right field, um, you were up close and personal to the event, the final event in the oh. ninth inning that kicked off the actual riot onto the field. You know, I can remember Herb Scored trying to get on the PA system, sixth inning maybe, to calm the crowd down. That did no good. And thank heavens, the cops off duty were listening to Joe and Herb because, oh, hey, we better get down there. And the Indian brass, they had taken off. They had left. But then the ninth inning comes, and gosh, they just tied the ball game. We, they were down 5-1, couldn't believe it. Sack fly ties the game. And here comes the guy out of right field to get Jeff Burrow's cap. And Burroughs thought he was taking a swing at him. And he turns around and does what he does. And 
the Texas dugout, Billy had that straight view from third base to right field. Let's go get them, boys. And here they came with their bats in hand. And then the Indians go, hey, we got to go help them. So they came out of the Indian dugout. And then the fans just flooded that field. They tried to grab my crutches. I, we almost had fights in the stands because of that. I, I made sure I held on to them. They wouldn't use them as weapons. And they were throwing the folding chairs. Tom Hilgendorf caught one in the head. One of the Indian relievers caught a folding chair in the head. Knives are being thrown. Almost caught Nestor Shalak behind a plate. And it seemed like it lasted forever. And there was nothing you could do about it. You know, when you watch the old films of Disco Night in Chicago, it wasn't covered like that, but it was pretty doggone close. The thing was, fans had come out in the field during the ball game, but no harm came from it. One guy ran by and gave a, gave a high five to Hendrick, Lowenstein, and Spikes in the outfield, but nothing. And, and the naked guy around trying to jump the fence, him and his buddy, and they got him back, and they threw him down. But it wasn't anything vital. You're just thinking, though, why can't they just ease up and let us play this game? Because my thought, being the Indian fan who never been to the pennant race in his life, was, well, we forfeited. We'll lose by one game. It, it, it just seemed like that they couldn't get it under control, no matter what they did. And it took them a long time to do it. The drive home was awful. You're, you're turning on to Pete, of course, and... He was just out of his mind. And then you go back. We went the next night and sat in the same spot, talked with Steve Hargan, who had pitched for us in the late 60s. And we got there early enough where we could talk to him. He was my mom's favorite pitcher. I told him that, and he sat down and talked with us. And he goes, I've never seen anything like it in my life. He, I go, were you scared? He goes, yes and no. It was the first when we ran out there, I'm thinking, this won't last long. Because then it did, of course. And it just seemed to escalate for him. When I later talked to Mike Hargrove about the night, he could see it coming all night, too. He, was, he had a guy on the ground behind first base, and he got scared. When they, when they all started coming out, you can see him coming from first base. He was literally scared. And thank heavens the Indians went out there and helped. But the next night was like going to a recital. <laughs> Very, just just light applause. Um, then then they became a baseball crisis game. Went on Cleveland won the game, hit three or four home runs. And they won the next night. And it became a baseball crowd. But it was never really a, a raucous crowd. And it never really got like you thought it might. It was very calm. I- I think people were just kind of in shock. Yeah, I think they still were too. And they wanted to demonstrate, okay, that that was a one-time thing. We're we're not going to repeat that. Or, or, and we're we're not the people who did that. They're they're yeah. They're hungover or they're in jail or they're in the hospital. The part one of the things besides of course the overall and and what a great retelling. Thank you so much. Is and and that you were there. Is there wasn't or didn't seem to be any hesitation for the Indians team, the players, to go out and support their fellow players. And when you think about it in retrospect, 
you know, they're, they're the enemy, you know, at least during the game. They're the enemy. You'd had that incident in Texas just the week before, what, five days before, where they were literally battling each other. And yet when a true crisis emerged, it appears there was no hesitation at all. Well, the baseball family is a baseball family. And they'll go to one another when things are like that. They still care when somebody gets hurt. I'm sure no one cared about Lenny Randall that night until they had to go out there to help them. But, you know, they, they rise to the occasion. And you're right, there was no hesitation by the Indians to get out there immediately and help them off the field if they could. And, you know, it's, and that's what you love about the game. But, you know, they, Lee McPhail pops up, the AL president, no more beer nights in Cleveland. Of course, I had three or four more with no issues. And there was nights scheduled in Milwaukee and KC the following day and the next day. And they were a little concerned about those, but nothing happened there either. And just oddly enough, the one time it happens, and still ever in baseball, it goes back to 1974 in Cleveland. But, you know, with, with Billy, he was fine the next time. I can still see him throwing pebbles at the crowd at that third base dunk. And I, that's a vivid memory. And he was, he, he was playing right along with it, part of the show as he always was. There were fans on top of the dugout too, right? Like oh, kind of yeah. Stomping up and down yep. and pounding and really causing a ruckus. And they couldn't, they couldn't get that under control. Because during the, there wasn't enough security in early parts of the game. Doesn't make a difference if they would have had more control. I don't know, because once they came out, no matter what happens, you were outnumbered. Once they poured from the stands on each side, no matter how many cops were there, you were still outnumbered. And in a way, even just those onesie-twosie incursions, intrusions onto the field earlier puts it in your mind that, oh, that's kind of okay. I mean, for that, for things to have erupted at the end there. You'd be you kind of psychologically. It's like, well, we've seen people out on the field, so it's kind it's kind of okay. Maybe today is different as far as where, for things to break loose the way they did at the end. And it's funny, Cleveland was always a city back then. If you watch any old Browns highlight films from the early seventies, many times after a big win, the fans would storm the field carry Leroy Kelly off the field. There was never an issue. When they won that 64 title game, the cops rimmed Municipal Stadium, which probably over 100. It did no good. They swarmed the field, tore the goalpost down, but there was no issues. But they would storm the field early in the 70s after a Browns win, and there was never an issue. They'd walk off with the players. Cops never stopped them. It was in jubilation. Yes. And, it wasn't threatening. And even sometimes during jubilation, something happens, but it never did. But this time, it just, I always wondered if they could have controlled it earlier. Could they have stemmed it off? And, you know, with, with the alcohol doing all the talking, probably not. It was just meant to be that night. You said the perfect storm was there, and those who could take advantage of it, jumping on a field for the first time, I'm going out there. They, they were going no matter what. You know, that's a good point about, I hadn't really thought about so much that it was just a much more common thing, usually in celebration, for people to run out on the field. But I remember, I'm, I'm from Los Angeles originally, and I remember my uncle took my cousins and I to a Pro Bowl game in probably the late 60s. 
And we all ran on the field after the game. There was nothing weird about it. There was all kinds of people running out there. You know, we're just at the time we were kids. I was you know, like 10 years old. So to see these massive human beings, you know, and you're right next to them and you see how big they really are. It was amazing. But, you know, we're just running around and it, it was nothing, my uncle didn't even think anything of it. Just like, you know, me, <laughs> you got to get back here. You know, we, we need to, <laughs> I need to get you home or your, uh, your parents will be mad at me. But uh, that's a good point about it. it was just a different feel and people had a, maybe a little more latitude with how they behaved. Um, another thing that's different, of course, and, and um, wow, we've, what a great discussion. We don't have to take much more of your time. But the line between fans and players, you kind of alluded to it earlier, wasn't like it is now. They were more, they were more like kind of normal human beings who happened to be great at a sport. They weren't these you know, demigods with entourages surrounding them. I'm sure you've seen a difference just even at double A. Yeah, the game's changed so much. Um, the double A guys, they appreciate the fans. They are always giving to them, which I still enjoy seeing that very much. If they come out before a game, they can sign an autograph. They will still do it. Now, with the netting up, it gets a little different now because you can't get to them as much as you could, say, four years ago. Now, the Guardians still try it. They're, they still come out and chat. During before home games, when they can, when they come out to get to loosen up, play catch before the game, I think they realize they need them. But you're right, the, the, the it's, it's it's so different now. Um, I remember my first camera day would have been in '66, and you could get as close as you could get, and the players would walk right up to you, stand five feet from you, take a picture, and those will never happen now. Of course, today. You can't have bat day anymore. You can't have ball day anymore, which is really a shame. They can't have bat days. Those were tremendous days, and they're gone. And it, it's just part of how society is. Yeah. Well, we can leave it at that. All right. Great talking to you, Jim. Any any other thoughts? No. Um. Thanks for having me. It was it was a wonderful night in history. I wish it would have ended differently. That was a great season. Um. I hold it dear still. It's still one of my favorite years because they drew the city back to baseball. 40,000 crowds, Bosman's no-hitter, you know, the Gaylord Perry 15 straight wins. It just, everything, talk about the storm was set for them to really win big. And I always thought if Gaylord wins that 16th game, Maybe the tide stays turning their way and they roll to a division title. Who knows? But it was it was a tremendously fun year for me. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Great talking with you, Jim. Before we launch into the Heading for Home docudrama in two weeks, next week we dig into the events of that fateful game at Cleveland Stadium on June 4th, 1974 with journalists Vince Guerreri and Bob Dyer.